Welcome to the Inside. Fireworks lit up the night skies across the U.S. this week, marking the 4th of July Independence Holiday. And after a year of being shut in, people celebrated a new kind of freedom, taking their families to movies, theme parks, sporting events, and restaurants. In short, life began to feel fun again. The box office shifted into high gear as F9 generated $70 million at the weekend box office, surpassing $400 million worldwide. A Quiet Place 2 has now generated more than $250 million, an impressive achievement in any time, but truly astounding considering the environment of the past few months. I'm Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is the co-host for this series, Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Senionic and joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening there. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Great to be here. Wim, in the U.S., the 4th of July fireworks are synonymous with summer, and there is a vibe that is kind of hard to describe uh, at the box office. F9 exploded onto screens, uh, did, did quite well, as we report. John Krasinski's Quiet Place 2 crossed over $250 million. The original ended its run at about three fifty. Absolutely, yeah. It feels as if we're starting to see the kinds of numbers that are that are somewhat hopeful. No, absolutely. I think that always when we have a good box office show, then it's, well, what's the next one going to do, right, kind of thing. But I think we get now several in a row where, where the box office is strong. I think that just uh, reminds us to the fact that this is something people want to do, right? The evening out. Uh, enjoying a good time, going to the movies, um, having an uninterrupted session of watching on a big screen. So, so I think that that it's it's uh, it given confidence to the industry, I think, and to everybody who who loves movie going. Yeah. Well, we've got a great guest. Absolutely, our guest today has dedicated his entire career to the passion of movies and growing our industry. Chris Aronson serves as president of domestic distribution for Paramount Pictures. He's been guiding the studios and the films onto the movie screens. He has served in senior leadership roles at Fox, MGM, and has been key to success to multiple movies, like A Quiet Place recently, Avatar, Deadpool, X-Men, Bohemian Rhapsody, and The Greatest Showman. Welcome, Chris Aronson. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. So, Chris, so let us get started. So, first of all, a big congratulations with A Quiet Place 2, right? It, it's, it's stunning how that is going today. So tell us, what, is, what has been the secret behind this steady success, you think? Well, obviously, with any successful film, it starts with the quality. And John Krasinski and team have, have created a, a very special motion picture experience. And the fact that this, this movie was every bit as good quality-wise and storytelling-wise as A Quiet Place, um, which, by the way, both critics and audiences agreed and if you look at the Rotten Tomato ratings and the audience exit polls, I mean, people love the movie. So I think it was eagerly anticipated. If, if you, your audience will recall, we were just about at the finish line to launch A Quiet Place Part Two when, when the pandemic took hold and cinemas, you know, shut down on a global basis. So uh, we had to be patient and we waited and uh, we picked what we thought was an opportune time to sort of genuinely kickstart the cinema going experience again. Yeah. You, you told the AP that um, you felt a huge relief, a sign of relief and a sense of optimism after the success of A Quiet Place 2. How do you look at the box office uh, and, and going into the summer? What's your feeling about that? I, I am optimistic. I think 
with A Quiet Place Part Two, and then I know Jim mentioned um, Fast Nine, which had opened in in select international territories earlier. But the one two punch, if you will, of A Quiet Place Part Two, followed by Fast Nine, both theatrical only offerings, um, not being served um, day and date in the home, I think, you know, is cause for great optimism for cinema going in general. And it sort of proves the the old adage, give the people what they want. And if you do, they'll come. Paramount has some exciting films on the calendar, right, for the rest of the year. Snake Eyes in July. And of course, the highly anticipated Top Gun Maverick in December. Do you think we will get back to the, the pre-COVID box office numbers with that or? I do. You know, right now, I mean, we monitor it on a pretty much daily basis and with all of the market research that goes on for, you know, consumer comfort levels and and breaking it down by quadrant. And, you know, the comfort level right now is around 80%, which is is really high. And I mean, when we started monitoring this, I think it was in the 30s somewhere. So we've come a long way. I think we still have a little bit of work to do, and you see it on a regional basis, making sure that people are aware that cinemas are open. And I, I think there's there's been an issue with that in certain places where cinemas have been closed for an extended period of time. So comfort level is, it, that's the good news that it's at, at 80%. I want to see it at 100%. You mentioned uh, confusion, and I have to say personally, and I feel my, I'm pretty informed as a member of the industry, to know when and where to find something now or what's in movies or what's being streamed. Is confusion a new challenge we're all going to face that typically we haven't? My personal feeling is yes. Pre-pandemic, there was an orderliness to sequencing of motion pictures. And I'm sure we can get into a little bit later what defines a movie. But pre-pandemic, it was very clear that when a movie was launched, it was launched in theaters. And as every consumer of of filmed content knows, any movie that's in a theater is eventually going to end up in the home. But there was no confusion as to when that was. It just wasn't now. So typically, once a movie is out of theaters, let's just say it's, let's use 45 days. So it comes off the screen in 45 days. Typically, what is the what is that dark period? When's that no man's land where I can't find it? And what do you think should replace it? Well, I think the forty five day window will do a, a, an excellent job of of replacing it. In you know pre pandemic, if if you were done in forty two to forty five days, you'd have to wait really another month to get to seventy four days, which was sort of the accepted business practice for the first in home. Uh, window for post-theatrical films. So that's, you know, and again, we think that this, I think the consumer, the consumer, honestly, a a consumer is not going to know the difference between 45 days and 74. They're just not. Right. But, but it is, it makes our marketing dollars much more efficient in our spends and, and negates the need to ramp up the machine again down the road right so if i look at you know the demand for the big screen is high right we just mentioned it uh, especially of course after our options have been very limited for a long time but with the arrival of the streaming platforms and it links you know to what you just said um chris is 
do you believe every film should be in the theater first? Or, I mean, you guys have launched, for instance, Paramount Plus, right? Um, or do you believe that, that there's a certain kind of order into this, how that interplay between the theaters on one hand and streaming platforms on the other hand uh, should be playing out? Well, look, I, I think there's there's personal opinion and there's professional opinion. And I, I can't make, you know, I can't opine on, on other companies' decisions. I know for us at Paramount, you know, for our theatrical releases, we believe in a, a very robust theatrical window. And, and we think that window is 45 days. We've done a ton of research that, that is, numbers don't lie. In, you know, 45 days over a multi-year period, in 45 days, you've done really 97, 98% of box office is, is done in 45 days. And most films are even shorter than that. So that's why we arrived at, at 45 days, that we think that protects theatrical and also, for the most part, will accomplish what we've been trying to do away with for a long time, and that is what we call the dark zone, that period of, of time after a picture leaves cinemas and before it is available in the home. And that is the time period where piracy runs rampant and, frankly, we lose a lot of money. So that's why you, you'd be hard pressed to find another industry where you spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars producing and marketing a product and then putting it to market and then taking it away from the consumer. It's just, it, it's, it defies all business rules. Chris, uh, Anthony D'Alessandro, great writer for Deadline, wrote this about you. He said that you are, quote, a rare Hollywood exec who is highly respected by both the filmmakers and the exhibition community. What has your focus been in the last year with these two groups? Have they been brought closer together? I mean, you know, there's always kind of a feisty dynamic between them. How have you uh, nurtured those relationships and kept everybody on the same page in the last year? Well, we have to focus on the common goal. You know, I, I'm, I want to honestly eradicate that feisty relationship that that you referred to because i think it's it's truly counterproductive and i think there has to be a much better understanding of the needs of both sides of the equation and and honestly it's it's that's nothing revolutionary it works in really every business in in the world so i think it starts with that commonality of look right this is what i can do for you and here's what you can do for me and as long as we're all driving to the same conclusion which in our business in its most simple form is how do we get people in theaters or as we used to use the the oft used phrase we need to get more butts in the seats <laughs> it's a, it's it's not a it's a very complicated business, but at its core, it's not that complicated. It's great storytelling, get people, get butts in seats. So look, I, I want to eradicate, as I said, that, that feistiness and get everybody working together toward the common goal. It's, it's not easy. I get it. But there has to be less of me and more of we. And I think if, if we can get to that point, then guess what? There, it's our potential is unlimited, and I want to, 
I don't want to see this business just survive. I want to see it come out of this, you know, this horrible period that we've all been in. But I don't want it to just survive. I want it to thrive. And I really believe that, you know, we can turn the 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 cinema business into a growth business and and not just a static line business. Well, obviously, uh, you and Wim and all of us are in the business of uh, driving technology and using it to create amazing experiences and in the cinema create something that you can't get at home, right? Are there technologies that you think have contributed to that or are contributing to that that are exciting to you? Uh, I think technology is one of the keys to 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 the cinema business. You know, there's the how do we differentiate the in-theater experience from the in-home experience? And, you know, it's been often said the in-home experience now with the proliferation of, you know, relatively inexpensive big screen TVs is it's a good experience, but let's face it. When you're in an auditorium with an immersive screen with Dolby Atmos surround sound and this crystal clear, beautiful laser HDR on the screen, you'd be hard pressed to recreate that in the home. And that's what separates the, the motion picture in theater experience from anything in, in the home. And, and I believe that the definition of a movie is a film that plays in theaters. That's why they're called movie theaters. If you create a movie to be watched in the home, that's a television movie. Okay. I, don't care, I don't care how big your screen Excellent. is, that is a movie for television. Doesn't yeah. mean to say that a movie that is released in theaters, movie theaters, again, and I called that a movie, can't be enjoyed down the road in the home. But when you create a movie, if it's a, if it's a movie, it's to be played in movie theaters. That's why they're called movies. Anything else is a television movie. We're getting the studio view from our insider today, Chris Aronson of Paramount Pictures. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced service and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 90,000 projectors installed globally, over half of the world's cinemas are illuminated by Cineonic. Visit Cineonic.com and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our insider today is Chris Aronson, who serves as president of domestic distribution at Paramount Pictures here in Hollywood. Over the past few months, we, we have heard the phrase, crisis expedite innovation. Entertainment as an industry, it has a blend of numerous disciplines, functions, technologies. Looking ahead, what do you believe the next five to 10 years is going to come? And did you saw some innovations which you say, hey, that's really driven uh, us forward uh, or will drive us forward in the next couple of years, but really, you know, originated over the last, let's say, period of, of a year here? Yeah, I think first off, we, you know, we have to look in the very short term and focus on the business at hand of, of getting people 
getting that 80 to 100% and making sure that that people are not just aware that theaters are open, but know that it's, you know, it's a great experience. But once we get past that, look, then I think we focus on the medium term. And I think that is focusing on what I mentioned previously about how do we grow this business? You know, we, we have a attendance at best is static and at times dips. And if you look at a, you know, a 20 year trend line, you, you're going to see attendance going down. And I, I've long maintained that the challenge should be, how do we arrest that decline? How do we, how do we turn that decline into an improvement and, and turn that graph around? There are millions of potential moviegoers that don't go to see movies in theaters. Let's find out why. Let's really dig in and find out why they don't. And look, there's always going to be a certain percentage of, of, of potential moviegoers that aren't there. But I believe that there is a massive pool of potential moviegoers that we can and must find a way to tap into. And if we do, guess what? Our business is, is going to be so healthy. But we have to find out why, what is it that prevents you from coming and distill that down to the short list of what are the biggest impediments to coming to see movies in movie theaters. You know, I, I suspect that, that some people don't go out to restaurants to eat. It's probably some people, but most people do. Every, most every house has a kitchen. Doesn't mean you want to cook every night. So you go out. It's the same thing with content. Everyone's got a TV. It doesn't mean you really want to sit on your couch. To me, this is, this is a true marketing opportunity for our business. Because the, that's the thing about going to see a movie. If you watch television, you can interrupt yourself at any given opportunity. And I do believe that television is made for, for the in-home experience. But think about how connected our world is, where no one goes anywhere without a smartphone or a tablet of some kind. They're connected. The movie theater affords you that opportunity, and it's a two-hour window, give or take. Some movies are longer, some are shorter, but it's a two-hour window that affords one the opportunity to truly check out. And I think that's a great thing. And I think there's, there's a marketing opportunity there. And... You know, it's just one of the ideas, I think, that that we can market in a holistic way of look how great this experience is. I'm struck. A, a, a colleague and I went out and saw Cruella the other night, struck by the difference. No one was looking at their phones. The lights went down. The sound came up. The show was run. I didn't go to the kitchen. I didn't check my watch. And you came out saying, I've seen I've seen a movie what we just experienced was not watching the WandaVision episodes on Disney plus. It's a different thing. It's an experience, it right? Is. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Look, there's a, there's another technology too that, that came now almost 12 years ago and I'll get to what prompted it in a second that for a short period of time became a real difference maker. And unfortunately, through a confluence of events, which, by the way, the blame lies on both 
sides, both on the studio side and on the exhibition side. And that is that thing called 3D. 3D remains the one in cinema experience that cannot be replicated in the home. So I constantly ask myself, how could this industry have possibly screwed that up so badly that now 3D is more of an afterthought? And I happen to know my colleagues, Jim Cameron and John Landau from Lightstorm, who are the ones that gave birth to the modern 3D experience with Avatar, mm -hmm. are working on a couple of other Avatar movies you guys may have heard. I think there's <laughs> four of them. And right. I, for one, can't wait to see what, what Jim has created. But we, as an industry, need to not just revive 3D, but do it in the way that it is meant to be done. And fully recognizing that there is a segment of the movie-going population that, that 3D is not for. That's okay. Because the premium upcharge experience, whether, you know, Dolby Cinema or any of the proprietary PLF screens, that's not for everybody either. But it is choice. And I'm just going to repeat, it is the one in-cinema experience that can't be replicated in the home. And as such, we need to devote all available resources to reviving and, and putting 3D as a major part of the in-cinema experience. To that point, and Wim, you have experience, uh, all of us have experience in China, but in China, when you ask someone, well, would you see it in 3D or 2D? They say, we just go to see it in the best possible way. We, the assumption is we're going to see it in 3D, right? Large format. It's a, it's a, it's a part of that sense of quality and, and the ultimate way to experience a movie. Wim, a couple of technologies that you think are, are going to help drive the uh, the exhibition and the movie business forward? Yeah, let me just connect to what, what Chris has said, right? I think that the reason why I believe uh, in China, for instance, 3D does so well, did so well, is because it is different, right? It is is when they go out, they see something they can't have at home, right? Being in relatively, you know, small apartments or small environments, they're, they're sitting in a big room, big screen, and the 3D comes on top of that. So I think that, that if you go to a movie in China, of course, you're going to see it in 3D if you can, because that's how you want to see it kind of thing. So, so I think that that's, they're probably less busy with all the technicality behind it, right? It's just like the, 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 the experience has to be something beyond what I can do somewhere else. So I think that, that um, we need to think you know, more and more about that because sometimes we get caught up into the details. But to your point on technology... You know, there's a couple of things that there's steady things coming, right? We, we want to get brighter pictures. We want to get more colors on the screen, more meaning, you know, saturation on the colors. We want to get more blacks on the screen. We, we want to be able to, you know, um, and, and then, you know, some people would say that's HDR, right? Yes, I agree, right? So we want to get more to that uh, quality stamp on, on the picture side. And HDR does, I think, is, is definitely an outlook there. Uh, we have capabilities of doing that uh, with different technologies there. Um, and again, you know, light steering is a little bit in our avenue, which which will find its way into this HDR world. Um, but the same thing is for sound, right? I think today we all, um, I would say, uh, embrace the fact that sound is immersive, right? And comes from everywhere. Um, and I think also that is an element. And, and so I think it is a combination, the quality, by the way, of the screens, right? So there's multiple elements which drive that. In the end, when you sit in your chair, I think it's about the sum of everything. <laughs> it's not about this one thing because you just want to want to be wowed. You want to be blown out of your chair, I would say. 
Um, and then first, as, as technology companies in this space, we, 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 we dive into multiple things and to make that better, make that better. So in a way, that, 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 that wow effect gets elevated. Yeah, if I, if I may just tell a quick little anecdote. We did a Q&A with John Krasinski that, that J.J. Abrams moderated right at the uh, opening, the, the Thursday previews of A Quiet Place Part Two, And John told a fascinating story about doing the mix, the sound mix for A Quiet Place. And he said, this was so much fun to get in there. And I, I was thinking of it, obviously, from a storytelling standpoint. And he said, this is so much fun because with this little creek, I'm going to get George in the third row. But, but then like five seconds later, I'm going to get Jim in the eighth row because he could, he could do all of this manipulation of sound in this, in this environment and know that he could bounce it around this auditorium for this just totally immersive experience. So I thought, man, that was just a great way to hear this filmmaker who, who is in, in the sandbox with his toys. We, we hear this over and over, and that is that the biggest proponents of technology in movies are the directors. Oh, They're without thrilled. a doubt. They're yeah. like yeah. kids at a toy store, right? right? Yeah, and I, I do think, just to button on this, that the technology, all of the stuff that we're talking about, I think there, there are other technologies that, that are being worked on now that we don't even know you know, what they are, but I think will contribute toward the, you know, elevating the in-cinema experience to, again, do things in those great dark rooms that you can't replicate at home. And there's, that's really one of the keys of, of convincing people to get off their couch and, and come to theaters. When you're screening a film, um, is there a moment where you, something triggers you inside and you say, this is going to be great, you see everything. So could you describe what that moment is for you and how it informs your actions? It's, it's one of the greatest highs you could ever have, you know, in being involved in this business. Um, and I, I will tell you probably the first time I had that feeling was I have to go way back early in my career, but we saw an early cut of a little film called dirty dancing. And it was on a very cold, winter night in Manhattan, we went to a downtown screening room and we were just mesmerized by this, this little movie. And we were, we were a small company and we met as a company the next day. And we said, um, this is a summer movie. We must release in the summer. And how do we do that? And that, was a great experience because everybody believed in it and knew it from, and this movie was not finished when we saw it, but we knew that light went on and we knew that, that we had lightning in a bottle. Um, you know, fast forward to fill in the blank. I mean, I could, you know, tell you any number of titles, but when you have that feeling, uh, greatest showman actually yeah. is, I was is thinking one that, that yeah. I will yeah. touch on because the director of Greatest Showman, Michael Gracie, <clears throat> had a vision for that film. And way before this film was greenlit, he walked many of us through. And say one thing about Michael, he did great pitch. Um, but he had such a clear vision for the storytelling of this movie, um, this musical movie. But it wasn't until... Pasek and Paul wrote the music for this movie that this story truly came alive. And, you know, when 
we first heard the music and th that soundtrack still is a remarkable piece of, of work because usually when you have a soundtrack for a movie or a musical, if you, and, and I think there were 11 original songs in Greatest Showman and every single one of them was memorable. And usually if you got three, maybe four that are like, wow, those, that's really strong song. You're in great shape, let alone every single one of them. And while the, the production wasn't the easiest one and the editing process wasn't the easiest one, once you saw that movie with that music and with a certain charismatic star, um, and stars actually, it wasn't, wasn't just Hugh because the supporting cast was amazing as well, some of us knew there was something really special there. So it, it is a remarkable feeling. And for those of us who've dedicated our lives to this business and knowing the impact of sitting in a theater with some of, maybe some people you know, but a whole bunch of people you don't know, and you have this magical experience. And, and I single out Greatest Showman because there was such an audience interaction to that movie uh, where people were literally stand up in the theater and sing along with this movie and dance and sing with this movie. You kind of knew you had something special. I saw it in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And by the time I'd gotten to the parking garage, I would bought the soundtrack on Apple iTunes. Yep. Before I got in my car, I bought the soundtrack. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. So, so that's the sort of thing when you, you, you see it, you hear it and you just go, wow. I'll tell you another one, Avatar. The first assemblage of Avatar was probably, I want to say three hours and 45 minutes. And we had a friends and family screening and you just knew, oh my word there's something incredibly special about this. And when you had some of, some of your guests come up and say, I just saw something I've never seen in my life. And you, you sort of the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you go, I think we got something. I think we got something. Yeah. 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 We're heading into CinemaCon, right? And this time and CinemaCon means all for us Las Vegas. And this time it's going to be August 23rd and 26th of August. Now, it is a moment when the whole industry comes together, talking about the latest films, latest technologies, and, and the latest trends, and of course, a lot of networking. We're really looking forward for the Paramount presentation, and uh, of course, the content and the, the pipeline you guys are going to be able to preview to everybody. What is your hope, uh, Chris, as, as you know, the, the first in-person-to-person -person show we're going to have in the industry after at least more than a year? What's your expectation there? What is success for you? That it's not 112 degrees. <laughs> no. What's, what's your next expectation? <laughs> okay. I can't, we, none of us can control that one. No. Uh, I, I honestly, Wim, I think uh, first and foremost, it's to reconnect. You know, uh, you know, I think this, this thing called Zoom that has, you know, been the, the medium with which our business has been conducted for the last gee, almost year and a half now, you know, look, has proven to be an effective tool, but it's not that effective. And I think there's, there is nothing like reconnecting in person with customers, both on the trade side, as well as the studio and exhibition side. But so we need to reconnect, we need to re-energize ourselves and, 
and re-energize re our industry and focus on what makes the theatrical experience so special and so exciting and so compelling. And again, I think that, you know, funnels us toward that we instead of the me. And I think if we can do that collectively, and then we'll we'll get a chance to, you know, get some sneak previews, if you will, of upcoming product, not just from Paramount, but from all the studios. I have a feeling we can come out of that week really re-energized and excited about what lies ahead. Well, the seas have been stormy and upheaval has been the, the watchword of the last year. I think of Jim Giannopoulos and you, there are a few captains <laughs> at the helm to get our ship through this. And we are lucky that you are, are with us and in it. And when I include that, you in this list, some steady hands of people who aren't losing their cool and keeping their focus on the on the big picture. So thank you so much for, for joining us. And Godspeed, we'll see you in Las Vegas. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, it's been an honor to be with you today. Thank, thank you. you, Chris. Thank, thank you, Chris. you, Wim. Thank you. Our quote of the day comes from F9 star Vin Diesel, who told a reporter this week, I think what feels best is just the idea that people are returning to theaters. It feels so good to say cinema is back. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Wim. And thank you all for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show, and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.